stay hungry, stay foolish. A new episode from the Brains, Beliefs and Biases series here on The Innovation Show. I just want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to create multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into Framers with Kenneth Kukie. We're often told that humans make bad decisions and that more data is better, but this is backwards. People are good at decisions precisely because we use mental models and can envision new realities outside of data. Great outcomes don't depend so much on the final moment of choosing, but on generating better alternatives to choose between. That's called framing. It's a cognitive muscle we can strengthen to improve our lives, our work, and our future. Today's book shows us how. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Framers, Make Better Decisions in the Age of Big Data, Kenneth Kukier. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm so pleased to be here. It's so great to have you. I learned so much. I updated my frames. I threw away old frames, all thanks to this book. It was so, so welcome. And I just wanted to share this with our audience. One of the goals of this show is articulated by a quote by Edith Worth, and she said, there are two ways of spreading the light to be the candle and the mirror that reflects it. And the way my mental model for the show is that it is the mirror to reflect light. And this show absolutely got so much light from your book. But I wanted to share a quote from your book because it is so purpose driven. And I want to share this, get a load of this to our audience. Broadening the range of frames in our own repertoire, engaging in cognitive foraging, great term, and practicing the clean slate strategy are useful tools for different situations. A way to see the difference is like this. If adding diverse frames to our repertoire is similar to acquiring relevant books, cognitive foraging is reading voraciously across a spectrum of subjects, and the clean slate strategy is being passionate for knowledge altogether. That's a much better way of framing what this show is about, Ken. I absolutely love it. And I thought maybe we'd start from that perspective because it's very much at the heart of this book. Absolutely. I mean, where to begin with that? Um, let me start with this, which is um, you, po you pointed out at the very beginning that the, you this was an opportunity to throw out your frames altogether and rethink things. And interestingly and curiously, one of the messages of the book is actually, you're probably better off not doing that. And the reason why is the frames that we have are pretty good. You know, we've brought humans to the moon and back based on framing. Uh, we've created the civilization that we have and human rights and constitutions and democracy based on frames and, and banking and banking regulation. So it's better to try to stay within the frame we have and to adapt it and to modify it rather than sort of constantly throw it out and grab something more different and new. That's, if you will, a very conservative, lowercase c, non-political view of looking at it. Now, um, more radically, there's times of change in which the very substructure of society is different and the existing frames that we have will no longer fit. And then we absolutely must abandon an old frame that's not working and and adhere to a new frame. And the clean slate strategy is one way in which you have to try to so 
push away all other inputs and think of things completely fresh. We, we talk about an example of how that was done in computer coding in the 1970s, which might feel a little bit rarefied. But maybe to begin us on this journey, it would be useful for me to explain what a frame is. Um, what is framing? What is a mental model? Okay. <clears throat> so at every moment of life, uh, we're being flooded with inputs and sensations and 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 simulate stimulations, and we need a way to cognitively make sense of it. If not, we're constantly learning things anew for the first time, as if it were Groundhog Day. So the sky is blue and the sun is yellow, and, and under the sun is hot, and in the shade it's going to be cooler. Um, and a breeze might blow us, but will probably never blow us down. But it could blow us down. Um, that there's a tree and there's tree and bark, and that bark will have a texture. We don't think about that on a day-to-day -day basis, but when we were very, very young, it was new, and we had to sort of appreciate that and, and, and understand that. And what happened over time is that we created cognitively a simulation of the world within our minds so that we don't actually have to feel the bark to know that it is going to be rough or that we need to feel something that has a similar look to know that the texture will be the same. If you will, we've transferred that learning from one to another. Another way of thinking about it is the classic cocktail party scenario in which there's a huge din in the room that you're in, but you can focus your ear onto the conversant that you're talking to but if you wanted to, if it's particularly boring, you can eavesdrop on your neighbor and listen to that conversation as well. So we have the ability to move our, in this case, oral sensations of what we're gonna pay attention to. We have that same ability to do it mentally. The frame, if you will, the mental model is the expectation of the world. It compresses information. It says that in the hurly-burly of information that's flooding us, we don't, we can, we can make the world can be comprehensible and predictable because we have a certain expectation of what will happen in terms of its causal effects, in terms of counterfactuals of what if, and in terms of constraints of, of different limitations of the world, that there's gravity, that a dropped object will fall down. Okay. So if we have these frames, what we can do, and the big revolution that's taken place in the last 20 years in, in cognitive science is to realize that we can use this basic feature of cognition and transform it into a muscle, a cognitive muscle, with which to deliberately frame situations one way or another. And by doing so, if we modify the frame or reframe it, we can increase the range of alternatives that we see and therefore make better decisions and get better outcomes. And that's the big story. As I mentioned there about the purpose-driven really at the heart of it, what I felt was this is about updating or using the right frames, as you said, it's the foraging, like your library behind you or mine behind me, it's picking the right frame for the right job. And as sometimes you might need to discard an old frame or update it. But what I thought, while that is like for making the world a better place, or to be able to deal with these big problems that we have coming down the line, big challenges that humanity has ahead as a species. I wanted to just firstly tip the hat to innovation, because you mentioned this from an innovation perspective. For example, you talk about the difference between the framing for Apple and Nokia, how they saw the same business, the same industry, but saw it from a different frame. So I thought we'd throw that right up front for the innovation part of the innovation show. Absolutely. It's a, it's a great classical uh, 
uh, example of how you see the world affecting what you do in the world. But I should say the, the, the backstory, which isn't in the book, to how we chose that example uh, is a little bit humbling. And I'll, I'll, I'll relay it to you now, which was this. In 2006, I was at the GSM World Congress, which is at the time in Barcelona, the famous mobile phone industry trade show where all the people go. And as a journalist, I was meeting people and doing things. And one of the people who I'd scheduled an interview with was the CEO of Nokia. And it went extremely well. Um, We saw things very similarly. I'm a very respectful journalist. I get very hard, hardball questions, but really good executives really appreciate being challenged. And so it was one of those great ideas where we tussled and prodded and really tried to understand the industry in the future directions. And we're, as, as my new best friend and I are sort of patting each other on the back and, uh, and saying goodbye, you know, this massive Finn, um, as he was, um, uh, he asks me, as often this happens in journalism, uh, a little private question. The, the, the notebook's closed, the pen is in the pocket. And so there's a little bit of a parlay, as they say in the military, in which you just chat about things. And you sort of change, a little bit of intel changes hands. And so he leans over and says, so there's rumors of a that Apple's going to make a mobile phone. What do you think? And I said, well, honestly, sir, I think this is going to be Steve Jobs' Waterloo. Now, where I came up with the term Waterloo, I have no idea. Like, ABBA? Like, what's that about? Leave that aside. He leans in and he says, what do you mean? And in a perfect uh, economist fashion, I lay out an analytical scenario that, it, that is stitched together, I think, brilliantly, sadly, incorrectly as well, as things will happen. But I, this is what I say. This is the first time that a lot of these technologies have been used before in a handheld device. And so it's not certain they're all going to work correctly. And the day that a person picks up a phone and expects it you know, the screen to be vertical and it's actually horizontal and this doesn't work, it's the day they get really frustrated or the touchscreen doesn't work because their hand's wet. That's going to be a problem. But the second and more important thing is this. Apple is used to, is to, used to shipping products in the hundreds of millions. And the mobile phone industry ships products in the billions. And the point is that you respect what's called the five, as he knows, I said, you respect the five nines. And that refers to 99.999% uptime, which was the standard of AT&T. And that was spread throughout the telecom industry, which meant that no matter what was going to happen in the world, the telephone system would work. Now, keep in mind, uh, it worked so well that they even went from circuit switching to packet switching, technically, so that it could survive a nuclear war. It worked that well, the telecom system. Was, sometimes, if you remember when you were very young and there, maybe the snow would happen and power lines would be down there, it'd be a blackout, but the phone worked. That was all very deliberate. So I said, if you have a culture of, of, of perfect reliability and the computer industry has a culture of systems crashing and the consumer just has to hope for the best, that's going to be a real culture clash, and I don't think consumers are going to want it. Phone comes out, and oh, we should I should also say, and the phone's going to be very expensive. Like people are talking about a thousand dollar phone, which is unheard of because, of course, the ethos at the time was for the mobile phone industry to create telephones that were as inexpensive as possible. Yes, there were feature phones that had that had, had a pricing premium in the hundreds, but typically you could get a phone for twelve dollars, and that was going to be important because Nokia's biggest market at the time was Africa, in which the handsets their their whole ethos was to reduce the number of parts to make all the parts across models interchangeable, 
and therefore have the lowest price possible with the most basic feature set possible. So text sending a text was really difficult. Okay, so um, I know I'm at the risk of making a long story longer, but I'm not gonna do that. Here's where we go. <clears throat> so of course, he looks at me and he thinks to himself, this man's a genius. This economist journalist, like the CEO, any CEO of Nokia has to love the fact that a that a thoughtful person is, has unveiled a rationale for why Steve Jobs's iPhone is going to fail. A year later, the iPhone comes out and it eats Nokia's lunch. Okay, and uh, and just trances it. And within basically eight quarters, eight financial quarters, the company goes from the number one mobile phone maker in the world to teetering on irrelevance. So what happened? Well, it's a problem of framing. Steve Jobs framed the device into the, into the computer industry in which you create the, an extensible product that can be upgraded with software in which the features are defined by the user and that you give the most performances you possibly can. It was basically a computer in a compact form. The Nokia had the frame of the telecom industry in which all of the features were predetermined by the handset maker and the carrier and that the user had very little freedom. In fact, we thought the user just wanted to make phone calls with it maybe, and everything else was a addition to it rather than a general purpose device in which the phone was actually the least used and least important of the different features. In fact, the joke that I have is like, I take out my iPhone, I'm like, hey, do you know you can make phone calls on this? Like, I thought it was a camera, right? I thought, I thought I'd collect my internet, but it turns out you could actually talk to people too. That reframing, of the mobile phone by adopting the, the model of the computer industry and the frame of the computer industry rather than that of the telecom industry explains why both companies who are technologically superior had super smart executives and were in the exact same market and could look at all the exact same inputs in the marketplace. They had a different way of looking at the world. They had a different frame. The telecom frame was appropriate from you know, Alexander Graham Bell in the 1800s and early 1900s, all the way up until the beginning of the of, of the 2000s, 2005, 2006, 2007. But what had changed was that the constraints and limitations had been removed. Uh, the the processors were much less expensive. All these uh, they were much more high performance, and much a lot of the technologies could could be bundled together. And consumers would be willing to pay a thousand dollars for it and wait in line for it because that it, it could give them all of the functionality that they wanted. The end result, of course, is that the new frame of the computing industry fit the marketplace far better than the old frame of the telecom industry. And people are still, although the reliability is good, it's not five nines, but that's fine. If it crashes, you just you just restart it again and life moves on. It's brilliant, man. Thank you so much for sharing that story because it's so interesting that even it was Stephen Elop was the CEO at the time that no he was the one who came in to do the fire sale when oh, he sold its patent he was afterwards it. yeah he was afterwards um I the name was I think Pekka Unibin it was oh a that's very, right very yeah Finnish name it was a yeah. very Finnish yeah wow so you were in at that perspective because the reason I was asking was this is one of the points and th this is where I was saying like you need to update your frames or I was said discard them but update them because they become scratched and worn through which you see the world. But I thought it was so interesting 
that there was almost a hunger to find a reason why he should cling to the business model the way it used to be. And that's one of the points that I got out of the book is that we have that bias towards keep the frame in place, look for any kind of excuse to put it, keep it in place. And that seems to be what happened there. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, let's dwell on that for a second, because it's so it shows a gravity or a constancy, right, a pull and attraction, a pull to the past. Um, Auguste Comte, the famous French philosopher, said, les morts gouvernent les vivants, the dead govern the living. And what he meant by that is just in the case of institutions and culture and laws, that all that we have around us, architecture, whatever you want to put it, almost all that we have around us is the beneficiary of someone who is dead. Keynes said something similar about how most of our institutions are from some dead, long dead economist has come up with the idea behind it. So it's so, so interesting that we, I mean, it's a cautionary tale for us in our own lives to think, well, what are the, what are the features of the world that we are holding on to where it's time to abandon it? I'll give you one right now. I don't want to dwell on it, but I think we should just sort of name them and then we can go on to other things. Um, right now, we're in, there's a war in Ukraine, right? And, um, one of, and we've created institutions to try to prevent war and to make war sort of something that could happen under the rules of war. We did that after World War I with the beginning of the Geneva Convention, which is a series of documents over about a, almost a 40-year time span. But we did that, at, most importantly, after World War II with the creation of the United Nations. And there was a Security Council. And one of the members of the Security Council is Russia. And Russia is the aggressor in the war of, against the Ukraine. So you pose the question today, is the UN still relevant? Like, why is it relevant? How is it relevant? The UN also has become sprawling. It was created. There was maybe about 50 countries in the world. Now there's about 180. Um, there's uh, there's um, there's these subsidiary UN agencies, everything from the World Food Program to the, to the you know, Commission on Refugees and Human Rights uh, and on Protecting Women. There's these little subspecialties. The World Health Organization is part of the UN family, right? Of course, it's doing public health. So you pose the question, like, what UN? It's like, and I'll, I'll even up that even further. When Lehman Brothers was poised to collapse uh, about 15 years ago, it was 2008 now, the, the problem that all the investment banks had to do is they had to ask themselves, you know, almost overnight, what is our exposure to Lehman? What is our counterparty risk to Lehman? And all the general counsels came back and said, what are you talking about? There is no such thing as Lehman Brothers. There's about 10,000 separate legal entities, all of which are somehow affiliated with Lehman Brothers. But there's no such thing as Lehman Brothers, right? Like that's just a brand that you see in a magazine advertisement. Okay, so it poses the question that all everywhere we look, we see that we have institutions that might be fit for purpose, the American Constitution, and institutions that look like we might need to adapt them, the Constitution, uh, the Bill of Rights, right, interpreted through the Supreme Court in America. And then we see things that might actually be past their expiry date. Is it the UN? And if so, what part of the UN? And how did the UN go from being a security council and a, and a small organization in San Francisco to this, where the treaty was signed, to this massive sprawling entity, some of which does extraordinarily good things and other things that yeah, maybe we don't really need by an international body? 
I love it, Ken. And I, I want, uh, like, I'm so interested in the fact of clinging to the frames of the past and Kant's quote, for example, of the, the things, the models that exist or the frames that exist persist. And one of the ones I, I thought of just as you were speaking there, I remember at the start when, for example, do you remember in the early days of, of cheap travel like Ryanair? They had all these fees for all these, and they had to actually get rid of those fees. And Blockbuster with late fees, for example, or any kind of business, like that is one of the huge struggles. They have built up this way of rev of creating revenue streams, and then they have to let them go because the business the business environment changes. And I just wondered, was there any more examples you had of that that you discovered through your work with The Economist from those great interviews that you had where you witnessed an organization clinging to the frames of the year, uh, frames of your? <laughs> Such a good question. I'm sure we could come up with some great ones. Let's let's just take let's let's start us off by by examining in a bit more forensic detail the story of Blockbuster because it's such a classic one. Um, Blockbuster for for the kids who are unaware uh, uh, rented out video cassette tapes, which was the way by which you could watch a movie by putting something into a machine and and the and the magnetic videotape uh, would actually replay the information. And so it's a physical product. And when Netflix went into the industry, into the market, they were a real disruptor. Netflix is a multi-billion dollar company now and it's sort of pantheonic. It wasn't at the time, it was a startup and this is in the late 1990s. And the way they disrupted was they actually were not streaming because that didn't exist yet. There was not the broadband to support that. Their business model was to actually mail the compact discs, the movie on discs that had a sort of digital rights management tool in it that after it was received, you could, you could play it and you could watch it multiple times within maybe a 48-hour band of time after you begin playing it, and then it was actually useless. And then you didn't have to return it. So the point is that there was no late fees. Now, Blockbuster was actually seeing footfall uh, decline in their shops, but they weren't too worried about that because they were still making money hand over fist deep into the late 1990s and early 2000s. And the reason why was, as you point out, not just from video rentals, which wasn't a great business to be in, but in late fees, which is actually a great business to be in, or so you think it's a short-term business. Now I'll take a step back further. In profitability in business, we tend to think of something that we can call good profits and bad profits. Okay. Now, good profits are profits that you earn and the customer is really, really satisfied. They're very happy for, for doing it. In fact, they probably slap you on the back doing it. So Tesla is a good example. There's a wait list for their cars. People get their cars and they're so excited. They're middle-aged, but they've got a sports car and they feel great and they're wealthy and they can drive an expensive car and, it's, and their neighbors look at it and it's a little sleek and sometimes the doors open up like you're in sort of a 1970s, you know, back to the future car, DeLorean. All right. Those are good profits. People are really happy to pay for it. In fact, you've got great pricing power. If it costs a little bit more, you'd lose some customers, but the other people would be happy to pay for it too. Then there's bad profits. Bad profits are negative profits, profits that you get after a bad consumer experience. And late fees is almost emblematic of an example of that, where it's just a tax on the consumer and they hate it, but they have to endure it, right? And so the companies can become incredibly profitable with these um, with these negative, with these bad profits. And that's what was happening 
to Blockbuster. So for them to change their business was going to be very difficult. The first thing is they've got physical stores, they've got physical staff, they've got a whole team that manages that. For them to go into and to acquire, for example, Netflix, which was after the dot-com bust in the year 2000, was begging to be acquired and went to Blockbuster and was in negotiations with Blockbuster to sell themselves Blockbuster for a couple hundred million dollars. But Blockbuster is a publicly traded company worth billions of dollars. They're really arrogant. Like they're talking to these startups from Silicon Valley. Forget them. Like we're Blockbuster Video. Like in terms of brands, we've got one of the most recognizable brands in the world. It's hard for you to drive 20 miles in the United States and not find a Blockbuster Video rental store. We have uh, probably 10,000, excuse me, 100,000 employees um, who we manage and manage our payroll. Like we, so we're citizens of the community, um, when we rock up into a, a corporate retreat in Sonoma, the, the mayor wants to meet us. So they don't want to sort of deal with, you know, with these small startups. And if we, and also, of course, a large company has lots of different divisions and lots of different people, and they spend a lot of time hiring them. So their view is, you know what, if we want to go into mail delivery of CD-ROMs, um, we have a team that could just do it ourselves. Why buy it when we can build it? Right? So th- that sort of hubris is what they have. They also, again, were making so much money. However, in a short period of time, people were so angered at Blockbuster and Netflix was catching so much traction that it was hard for them to change their business model to go into sort of the delivery of of Netflix of the CDs and get rid of the stores. But it was even harder for them to reduce their late fees because if they reduce their late fees, they kill their profitability. Yet they needed to and they did. And they actually got rid of late fees. They had a huge advertising blitz about how there was no more late fees. This was crazy. In hindsight, at the time, it seemed fine. So why do you think it was crazy? Well, the last thing you want to do if you have these negative profits, is to trumpet the fact that you're removing it, thereby fueling the passions of all of your detractors to remind them of why they hate you. And so literally, you can go online onto YouTube and find this, of the blockbuster advertisements in the dawn, rather in in the desperate last days of blockbuster, where the ad is of a protest taking place with all these people with picket signs marching down the street saying, no more late fees, no more late fees, descending on a blockbuster that unveils a banner that says, no more late fees. And then the sort of the whole purpose of the, of the protest goes away. In, at the time, look, business is really hard and nobody knows the future. So we have to have some sympathy for people, particularly advertisers, who are throwing things at the, throwing pasta at the wall to see what sticks. I get it. In hindsight, we can look with, you know, with, a heavy heart and a bit of schadenfreude to notice that this was a ridiculous ad that would only incentivize all the detractors to the brand to hate Blockbuster even more. And then the end was over. Um, but there are many cases of companies today that are still stuck in this world of needing to reframe their business model, yet being feeling a, a sense of paralysis that it's hard for them to imagine how they can do otherwise. What I love about the book is you give us not only loads of examples of frames, etc, give us a, a, a language to understand it simply. But then at the end of the book, you actually give us well, here's some ways you can start as a, a, in wherever you're sitting, here's how you can start. But as I keep as I mentioned at the start, it's so important for the big problems that we have as a planet, as, as a humanity, as a species. But 
one of the things I just wanted to mention as well was for leaders running organizations, I often think of that quote by Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And when you look at the example you just gave, and how Netflix was the startup and was trying to sell and then went off to massive success. If you think now, just like Blockbuster kind of clung to the frame of late fees as a revenue stream, that bad revenue stream, as you said, I thought about how well Netflix today, one of the things they didn't do was they kind of, you know, they went, yeah, we know people are sharing login details, but you know, we're making so much ground, let's keep going, let's keep going. But then the stock price gets to a point of stagnation, and they go, "Uh Oh, let's go back and look for <laughs> look for those logins now and start charging and start to put hurdles and blockers and barriers in the way for people, and thus causing a problem there. And now they're struggling with their stock price. It's really about the. I mean, there you could argue that the problem is the is the growth model that Wall Street expects all companies to to not just do well, but to actually be increasing their revenues, and that leads to sometimes perverse incentives, right? That might not be fully pro consumer, but pro company, pro shareholder, and this might be one of those examples. Now, I think that there, there. I mean. In effect, Netflix had a business model in which the payers were subsidizing the non-payers. So that wasn't the best thing to do. And there could have actually been ways, quieter ways, to crack down on it that would have had relatively the same effect. But because it wasn't broadcast, it wouldn't generate ill will. And Wall Street could have had maybe more subtle messaging around that so they understood that there was going to be an improvement of profitability without an improvement of, of, of customers. Uh, numbers, right? Uh, because that maybe there would be some people who would be who otherwise would would tip, and maybe you could even introduce a a discounted introductory offer that gives you not all you can eat package, but a smaller uh, consumption for people who you think are actually in fact what well, you would actually know. So if you really cared about this, you would actually identify the different IP addresses that were from from considerably remote locations. Uh, where there's they're using the same login, suggesting that they are there is a shared login. You can sort of find subtle techniques and experiment with it, little tests on how you can crack down on it without uh, without jeopardizing the payer's login. One example is you could actually ask them to prod to up, update their account details, and the person who updates their account details correctly or confirms something is the IP address of the of the payer as opposed to a satellite or a subsidiary. And then you can find a way to target that satellite subsidiary in the middle of a movie or before a movie in a very respectful way, saying, hey, we think that you may be, uh, that this account might be compromised, that this might be used by a, a subsidiary account. If you're the main account, let us know. You can find that. Or you would then just do the gentle prod and say, um, if uh, um, we will let you finish this movie, right? But we have to, but afterwards we're going to have to suspend this device account until it's sort of re re upped. However, we're going to at the end of the movie, we'll give you a special trial um, offer of one of one month for one dollar, good for six months, right? Uh, that'll entitle you to to uh, two movies a month. You know, you you could you would experiment. You would try you could try a hundred different experiments on different people to see what sticks and what really people like, and say. But uh, the trial offer that expires in twenty four hours. Right or 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 exactly thirty minutes after the movie's done, right? And and then the person is like, so 
I'm not gonna be able to see it again, but this company's letting me watch the movie when they know it's pirated, the account's pirated. And they're allowing me to watch a couple of movies for a dollar a month. What's, what's a dollar a month? Like that sounds great. I pay more on a coffee a day, right? So there would have been better ways to have, since the show about innovation, better ways to have interacted with those customers to enforce compliance to the rules than the way that they did it. But the bigger problem is reframing the economy in terms of the, the Wall Street's expectations of its growth model. I never thought of that. That's so, so interesting. And obviously, uh, very close to home for the work that you do on, on your daily, your day job as well. <laughs> but uh, th exactly. thank you, Ken, for, for tempering my, my curiosity there, because th I went off track from the book, which I often go off piste. So thank you. But coming back to the book, I loved your perspective, your frame on the AlphaGo, the DeepMind AlphaGo story. And it was particularly apt in recent shows that we've done. We had Dr. Ian McGilchrist on the show talking about the divided brain and how the hemispheres uh, treat the world differently, how we attend to the world differently, and how the left hemisphere is dominating the world, where it's very mechanistic and very data-driven. And I thought this was a nice echo to your previous bestseller, which was Big Data, uh, and how you talk about, well, and this is a, this is a, a tremor throughout the entire book is well in a in a time of technology and big data humanity is extremely important the human touch is really important the right hemisphere the framing the decision making from the human is so important and i loved that perspective on the deep mind alpha go story yeah so the uh, DeepMind has is is an incredible company, and uh, with uh, founders who have um, extraordinary values, uh, and not just in terms of their technical abilities, which of course have been proven to be extraordinary, amazingly successful in all that they've done, uh, from just not Alpha Gold but Alpha Fold, in which they've got protein folding, which is the basis of of all life, not just human but plant and and bacteria and well, not by be bacterial but it would be a but plant life and animal life as well um, and then creation of new drugs but they also are um, pretty amazing in terms of uh, emanating it with their, their sense of, of decency fairness justice and, and improvement of mankind now the the accomplishment that they did when it came to alpha zero and alpha go of beating uh, the best player at Go, and then by first by self-learning and self-play by the machine, as well as all the previous matches that they could get of extraordinarily good players, so that ultimately they reduce the game of Go to mathematics and probability, and then choose what is probably, probability speaking wise, statistically, the best move. And therefore, if you do that over and over again, these small, these, this accretion of uh, accumulation of tiny advantages, which is a term of art from the chess in the 19th century, um, over time allows you to win. Okay. So that's very good. And Alpha Zero did that purely by self-play, by, by in effect learning strategy and learning the rules of the game itself over time. Because if you have enough ref repetitions, you learn what you're allowed to do, and then you learn what works best. Now, the, the important thing, though, is that AlphaGo can win, and AlphaZero can win, but it can't know why. It has no idea to take what it's learned and to transfer that. Uh, there is a, uh, I'm simplifying because there is something of a, of a transfer learning element of one, of one game to another. 
But there's no way to abstract that and to apply that abstraction to a new circumstance. Napoleon famously said that chess was like love, was like war, and that if you were good at one, you could be good at the others as well. Right? And so in that idea, you could transfer what you've learned in strategy of sacrificing your queen for to win the match in terms of you know, winning the affections of a lover and in terms of winning on the battlefield. Now, alpha zero, the algorithm, can't actually abstract from it. So an, an example is the human chess masters would look at some of the best moves of alpha zero and could identify um, that in fact, it's making a distinction between position and mobility. In chess, we typically looked at the value of the piece and we looked at the value of the position. And there's a there's four squares in the very center of the board, which is the most sort of prize, known as a golden square, uh, that if you dominate, typically that person is going to win the match. But what was not privileged so much was the idea of mobility. Like what I mean by that is if you have a pawn in that golden square, that pawn can actually make two only two moves. It can go forward by one or it can attack by going diagonal by one. But if you have a bishop there, it can go in four directions, limitless, you know, diagonally left, diagonally right, and back in both sides. So alpha zero was positioning mobility over board position, but it did not know that. The very terms that I'm using, peace, position, mobility, are concepts, they're frames, right? They're mental models of how to conceptualize the game of chess. Alpha zero and alpha go can win, that's fine, but we were able to abstract from that. And what the important point of that is the best chess masters were looking at it and improved their own game by applying what they learned from how alpha zero won so well. So the point is that, and the big point is that human beings become smarter and better by learning from artificial intelligence. That's a big story. And I, I love to connect it to later on in the book, in chapter three, you talk about like in this age of the increasing, exponentially increasing prowess of artificial intelligence, machine learning, etc. We need to improve our ability to frame. And I loved, again, another story that echoes that one was the story of open AI beating human players in the esports game of Dota. And a quote I pulled might spark you off to remind you of the time of writing this, you said, computers calculate, but minds imagine people can make their mental wanderings hue to reality and envision new realities by the degree to which they adopt constraints. In doing so, we can improve the world, not accept what is, but create what can be. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm so um, sort of quite flattered. Um, I think that's true. I think that it deserves more people need to hear that, particularly younger people. Um, that's the big story too, right? Um, that the for all the greatness of our machines and our algorithms, it is beholden to the data that is fed into it. And most of the time, people, the, the large criticism over AI and the algorithmic society is one of bias, that inside the data, there's this sort of inherent bias that could actually be negative against vulnerable groups. And that's true. Uh, and that's a big problem. But there's a more foundational concern, 
which is uh, that the data itself is inherently retrospective. It also presumed that it could actually, that informationally it could be rendered into a data state that then be fed into a computer and that there was enough of it for the computer to find meaning in it. But the interesting thing is that progress in mankind and humankind doesn't work like that. We don't have all of the data. We don't know everything. If we did, then it wouldn't actually be progress. It would just be a gentle evolution. We'd already have been there. Instead, it took a flight of imagination of someone to conjure up data information in which there was no data per se. So um, you could take um, the um, the geocentric versus the heliocentric theory of the universe, one in which the sun revolves around the earth and the other in which the earth revolves around the sun. Now, stationed on planet earth, day in, day out, it looks as if the earth is stationary and the sun and all the stars revolve around it. And that indeed was the dominant thinking for, for thousands of years. And we even created astrolabs. We created um, sky maps and incredibly robust calculations to identify the positions of all of the heavenly bodies every night and also predictively into the future in 20 years and 100 years, where Venus would be in exactly 20 years from tonight, we could actually calculate with incredible accuracy. However, it's still presumed that the maps themselves were amazingly elaborate. And the reason why is because for peculiar reasons that no one could explain, <coughs> although there were many theories, you would have all the other planets make these small little retrograde motions, these epicycles. So if you will, Venus would circle the earth like this, epicycle, epicycle, these tiny little small cycles. Now, of course, if you have a map of the entire universe that looks like this, it becomes really, really, really complicated. All you need to do to simplify it is to presume that the Earth is not stationary and at the center, but is one of many other planets orbiting the sun like Venus. And suddenly what you go from the Ptolemaic map, which is with the retrogrades and the epicycles, to the Copernican map, which is of these circles, right? And of course, we know it's not even a circle, it's an elliptical sort of path, but we'll go for a circle for simplicity. And once you've made that reframing, suddenly it all makes sense. It's a lot easier to use. Interestingly, when you have your Copernican map, how much better were you initially at predicting where Venus would be in 20 years? The answer is not at all. You, were, it, you had no improvement in predictability, but the frame was better because it corresponded more accurately to reality. Okay? And the key thing, though, is that you didn't actually have the data or new data to justify that this was correct. What you actually really needed to do ultimately was to send a space probe outside of Earth and to identify what was going on, and then you could actually identify that. You could actually do it on Earth with the ways that you did with Alexander and by, by looking at shadows. Um, there are there is many other ways that you can sort of quote unquote prove it. But if you wanted to have true observational data, you need to get off of Earth to actually identify what was going on elsewhere by an independent body rather than just doing it from your perspective on Earth. The key thing though, is that you never have all the data that you need. And that when the human imagination is there, the human imagination needs to envision an alternative that doesn't seem likely. And then we can identify if indeed it's true or not.
I mentioned at the start about the purpose in this because it, it's so evident and there's beautiful writing in this you and your co-authors did a magnificent job and one of the things that it it brought to mind for me is I'm often reminded on the show that even though lots of metrics show humanity is improving that sometimes I shine a light on stuff that isn't so positive and my intention is not to be negative in any way I actually want to just go look there's there's I know loads of things are improving, it's great. <laughs> but there's lots of problems still there. Because as we improve things, there's still lots of other things going on. And you tell us, sunny optimism may be misplaced, its purveyors extrapolate to how things will evolve in the future, but their analyses disguise troubles. There is a pathology of human progress, that the very fruits of our creation risk being the sources of our destruction. Whether it is a high-tech arms race or a hotter climate or a growing underclass around the world, we need to get better at framing to respond. Normally, species go extinct because they cannot adapt to their circumstances. Human beings could be the very first species that has everything we need to adapt but perishes because we did not use it. Not because we have no other choice, but, but because we fail to make the right choices and the right choices needs the right frames. And I thought this was such a powerful phrase and a powerful part of the book, but also one of the key messages that I hoped to share from the book. I sort of feel like that instead of having this podcast, we should just have the the, the book, because I think I expressed it so much better when I actually It's beautiful. You did such it. a great job. It's Thank a great, well, so well written. No, thank you. Well, of course, there's there's there was three of us there, so it's it's so all of our all of the co-authors. You know, thank you for that. Um, what we had in mind, of course, was obviously the high tech arms, climate change, uh, income inequality, political polarization. To understand the book, maybe it's useful to understand how we got to writing it, which was a realization between Victor and I that we were after big data years later. We had both been spending a lot of time nervously fretting and collecting string intellectually on a theme that just seemed um, not relevant to the book and not what people were talking about, which was that if we were to define the last decades of our lives, right, we're both of a certain age, middle age, and we knew that, you know, over the next 30, 40, 50 years, what the, the, the world is basically going to be sailing between two massive icebergs, artificial intelligence on one side and a political authoritarianism on the other. And the, the moment that these two things merge, when the authoritarians adopt AI, all bets are off then things look really, really bad, right? And so we wanted a response to that. Victor's comes from being, he's Austrian, interesting political history uh, of a certain age. So just as Arnold Schwarzenegger talked about, you know, walking around in Austria and seeing the broken men who had sympathized with the Nazis, I'm sure Victor had a similar story as well. Strange place. Uh, Austria was also one of the few places, was one of the places during the Cold War that was both West and East. Neither side needed a visa to go into it. So all the, in all the spy movies, they're recruiting spies on both sides in Vienna because it was a place where East and West would meet during the Cold War. 
So he has that background. Myself, I'm an American in part because my family lineage is French, and it was not a great place to be in France uh, with with a background of being Jewish. And so the um, so there was a a fear on both of our sides that were totally separate that we didn't actually ever speak about and nervousness. He was a cyber lawyer, so he understood privacy law. I was a, a business journalist, an economic journalist who really understood incentives, right? And also being a, a, doing political journalism and, and looking at questions of human rights and of freedom. I was very, and technology, I was very nervous by what I could predict. So when we realized we were working on, on curiously had similar files and similar notes buried in our hard drives on this theme, we thought to ourselves, well, how are we going to write about it? Because we write about the thing itself. Um, either you're going to be with us or you're not going to be with us. And it's going to be pretty, um, there's a risk that it's just going to look like every other book that's just sort of shrill and loud and, and has doesn't have any impact. So we wanted to abstract a layer away from it. Right to go up a meta layer and to try to understand well what is it behind this? We tried to do that with big data as well. Interestingly, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was a successful book. It wasn't like all the other books about information or statistics and data. It was trying to find something deeper behind the issue, why it mattered. We tried to do that again with this, and what we realized was that there are there are mental models, and and a machine can't adapt a mental model, and it can't actually reframe, but humans can. So there's something priceless in, in, in about human beings that in the age of machine, even if we're supporters of the age of machine, that we should actually um, privilege and that we need to nourish and we need to fertilize and we actually need to get better at if we're going to solve our problems. So we decided to write about mental models and framing and vaunt it not as critics of the machine age, but actually as the benevolent, benevolent supporters of the machine age. Ultimately, if the if uh, if a hardcore uh, our publisher of big data gave us a lot of money to write a book about statistics, but we talked about big data and machine learning, Penguin has given us money to write about liberalism. They think they are talking about cognitive psychology, but what we're really talking about is 19th century liberal, i.e., liberty, freedom, values of tolerance, diversity, and pluralism. And that's where the book ends up, that, that if we're going to solve our problems, we need to accept uh, we need a, a society of pluralism. Technology inherently doesn't think pluralistically. It simply does what we ask it to do. And if it's going to be plural, we have to encode that into it. But human beings don't have that limitation. We actually have our imagination, and therefore, we can actually see the world in a new way and deliberately choose how we see the world. And we become, and if we accept pluralistic pluralism, we accept the fact that no one, no one of us has all of the answers, that we need to work together with others in order to come up with the answers, particularly if we don't know what the correct answer is. And the state of the world that we're in is we don't know how to solve these problems. So we're going to have to work together with all of our ideas to get answers. Beautifully articulated, Ken. And I loved my favorite chapter is the chapter on pluralism and cognitive diversity. I actually saw it as frame diversity. And it's like each of us sees like a kaleidoscope 
the way we see the world and it's about a kaleidoscope of kaleidoscopes the way you actually can get such a holistic view of the world if you embrace neurodiversity and embrace different ways of thinking but one of the other undercurrents of the book is and actually not an undercurrent it's like uh, a clear message is that we can all make a difference and one of the things i loved what you did was what you mentioned there were like big data has has this uh, has this under lying message that is loud and clear and you use the success of that then to do the same with framers to actually impact be impactfully make a, a statement and the reason i say that is it's one of the things i love when somebody who gets to a point of success whether it be a musician or an actor makes a statement like you were saying you mentioned arnold schwarzenegger there and makes clear statements for the betterment of humanity and one of the people you talk about in the book is somebody who used a new frame and she put a new frame in place. And this was the story of Alyssa Milano. And you say here, democracy is a frame, as is monarchism. In business, lean manufacturing is a frame, as is OKRs, objectives and key results, the management system popularized by Google. Blue ocean strategy is a frame, but each of us can introduce new frames into the way we see the world and have such a positive impact as Alyssa Milano did. Yeah, so Alyssa Milano uh, is an actress uh, who I think uh, many people may know, but she her, her more recent claim to fame is she was the person who retweeted the, uh, I, the this sort of idea on Twitter that was written by a friend of hers saying if only during the Harvey Weinstein uh, sexual abuse scandal, if only people realized how frequent these sorts of interactions are, they would know that this shouldn't be accepted. Um, so if, if you've been the victim of, of sexual assault uh, or sexual harassment, just retweet me too. Hashtag me too. Uh, she, she, she retweets that off to her network. She goes to sleep. Uh, she used to be up early for a, 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 a recording uh, the next day, a production the next morning. So she's going to sleep at about seven, uh, eight o'clock, nine nine p.m. in the um, in San Francisco time. And when she wakes up, she's in LA. And so when she wakes up, uh, maybe seven hours later, it has a million retweets, and so it's gone completely viral. And by the end of the day, it has twelve million retweets, and it's a global phenomenon. So the point is that how why there's a reframing involved here is that victims of sexual assault had always been quiet about it before. It was discussed in a hushed environment, and it brought on shame, and there was a sense of disempowerment around it. And by rendering it public, and not making it something that was going to be discussed in hushed tones in intimate settings, but one that women would feel emboldened to speak in very subtly, or however they prefer it to be spoken, but it could just simply be a me too, but it could say a lot more still. And there was all of that. It was taking something that had been pushed back and quieted and locked away and exposing it to the light of day. And that was an empowering, not disempowering, but empowering um, moment in which it was the problem was vocalized, not kept quiet. And women could find a form of strength, not a form of shame. For all those reasons, 
it was uh, a remarkable social movement on par with the abolition movement of slavery and, and the Underground Railroad, and on par with um, the civil rights movement uh, and, and Martin Luther King and We Shall Overcome. And it was a great honor for me to be able to interview Alyssa Milano for the book and talk to her about her experience of how she came to do that and how she was in some ways an unwitting recipient of this because she had no idea when she she sent this tweet that it would have this effect. It was just simply feeling that she was actually sitting next to her baby daughter at the time and just thinking she can't bring the world into, she can't bring this, this child into this world. What she was also quiet about at the time, but then actually explained was that she herself was a victim of sexual assault on a film set when she was a minor. But she didn't say that then at the time when she retweeted Me Too. It was only later that she felt again emboldened by the social movement that had been created to basically reveal this. And she's never actually explained who the who the assailant is, but other than to the assailant and point out, hey, this happened and this was wrong. But we've seen a social movement like that that can crop up uh, can be extraordinary. And often it is at its origin a reframing. It's so important. I, and I really wanted to share that. And thank you for interviewing Alyssa Milano. Thank you for including it in the book as well. Because I, I thought when I thought about when I read about that, I was just thinking about how we all have access to social media, for example. And if we all were emboldened, like she was to put out some positivity out there or put out something important, it, it all collects and it all has a major impact on the world. So that was something I one of the reasons I wanted to share that was to encourage others to do the same, whatever it might be, whatever tragedy, speak up, have the courage to speak up, etc. But I, I'll jump onto something different, because I, I love the amount of frames of frames that you give us throughout the book. There's so many great examples. By the way, for those of you who are going to thinking of buying a, a copy of the book, buy a copy of the book, because we're only on chapter one. Here. <laughs> and, and Ken and I had agreed to do two, two uh, episodes, it won't be enough. And I don't want it to be enough because I highly, highly recommend buying a copy of the book. If you do also leave an Amazon review, if you buy it on Amazon, for example, because it really helps the author and it helps boost that algorithm. We do live in a big data society after all. But one of the things that Ken talks about in the book is if you think about, for example, a, an argument you might have with somebody or a disagreement, and it might be a strategy disagreement in an organization, or it might be with your partner, you disagree about something. Have a think about, are you just using different frames to see the same thing? And one of the examples that Ken gives, he calls it a different way of conceptualizing the crisis. And here you say, Ken, whether the outbreak was concentrated or dispersed was the question. And this was at the heart of the tension between the WHO and the MSF in framing the 2014 Ebola outbreak. And that was also echoed through to 2020. And the various frames different countries chose in how they framed the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, such, it's so interesting that you um, that you focused on that. So let me make a, a, a first a general point, which is that it is true that when you are when you do have a conflict with people, when there's a tension, often not often, but but sometimes the tension is going to be because you are framing the situation differently. Um, this might be a conflict, maybe not like a war conflict, where there might be different incentives 
um, but more like maybe a conflict with a spouse of whether I take a job or whether I move, in which am I privileging um, you know, the, 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 the new city that we're going to and the quality of life there, or am I privileging the income or the social status? And you could make a reasonable assessment on all those grounds, but if you put social status ahead of income, you'll come up with one choice rather than another. I'll be a journalist instead of a banker because if everyone knows that a journalist, there's no higher mark in life than to be a journalist and everyone knows that to be a banker, there's no better way of making money very quickly and easily as a banker. I, I caricature both journalists and bankers by doing that intentionally, just to be clear. So, um, however, in, in certain, in, in crises, uh, we've found that a difference in outcome is be often because people are framing the problem differently. And I'll explain the Ebola story and then, and then carry it forward to, uh, to COVID. So in the case of 1914, in case of uh, 2014 and the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, both the Médecins Sans Frontières, the, the Doctors Without Borders, the, the, international NGO that does extraordinarily good work in healthcare crises around the world, and the WHO, which does incredibly good work in healthcare crises around the world, had teams of data scientists and epidemiologists looking at the exact same data around the outbreak of this new uh, hemorrhagic fever in, uh, in, in West Africa, Ebola had come up every couple of years, and so there was nothing new there, but they were looking at, at what degree this was a crisis or not. The people who were, who were staffing those places were almost doppelgangers, one to the other. They were, came from the same institutions, they had the same grades, they had the same nationalities, they, it was very, they could be one to the other, they were almost irreplaceable. However, they saw things differently. The, the WHO, Look, we're looking at the actual numbers. And they said, numbers aren't that huge. So we don't think it's that big a problem. But, but Doctors Without Borders were not just looking at the numbers. They were looking at where the numbers were. And they noticed that the numbers were around border areas. And they suspected that because they were around border areas, they're around transport, transport networks and transport hubs and routes. And so that there was probably more cases than numbers were picking up. So at the exact same time, when the WHO said, there's nothing to worry about, Doctors Without Borders were saying, this is a full scale crisis. So what do you do in this instance? Well, the way things go, the gravity of, of prestige would weigh not on the civil society group, but on the UN agency, right? Stocked with, you know, with, with national officials who are appointed. And so they basically, they win the day just by dint of their status and prestige. And the world does not react in the panicked way that MSF wants it to. And that lasts for about one week until they realize it is a full-blown pandemic as cases are mushrooming everywhere, that you're just getting, it's getting worse and worse because it's exponential, but more importantly, because we're identifying that this has been, undercounting had been rife throughout because of the spatial dispersion of the, of the, um, of the disease. It turns out that um, unlike COVID, uh, you, you're, it's, hemorrhagic fever has two different, and Ebola has two different problems. The first one is that the period of latency is very low. By the time you're ill, you know you're ill. You don't have asymptomatic carriers. The second thing is the mortality rate is really high. 
Okay, if you have it, it's almost a death sentence with COVID, not so much. Um, in fact, not at all, we later learned, and particularly because our treatments of it, um, even just by not proning people, turned out to be much better. But it wasn't known that at the beginning. So what, ha- what would happen is the response turned out to be very, very good, and we were able to tamp down on, on Ebola, and it didn't become the crisis that it could have been. Okay, now fast forward to COVID. So at the outset of COVID, there was a question of, is this a, you know, a serious res- respiratory disease, or is this like the sniffles where you just power through it? And the answer is, it, in truth, can be different at different times. If it's February, if it's January and February 2020, and there's an outbreak of a new pathogen in Wuhan, China, you want to do everything you can to contain it. And if that means you do the Jacinda Ardern locking down the country early, you do that. And as she said in her beautiful press conference, she said, we only have a few cases. At the time, they had only maybe five confirmed cases uh, in New Zealand at the time. Well, a few confirmed cases, but so did Italy once. Now, what was happening in Italy at the time? In Lombardy, if you were over 60, doctors were giving you sedatives to die in dignity in the hallways of the hospital as they, the doctors would weep and try to care for those people who they could actually save. And that was pretty damning. All right. So it made sense to sort of slam on the brakes. At the time, of course, the WHO was talking about a, a mortality rate of people over 50 or 60 of about 9%. So one out of 10 people dead. Now, those were first reports. And what we know from the military as well as medical crises is you never trust first reports. But at the time, first reports is all you have to go on. And even if you can't trust first reports, you can't trust on either side, right? Um, because you can't, tr- not on the downside or the upside, because it could actually be an undercount, right? You, it, the, the 10% mortality, 9% mortality could only be because the people who are about to perish haven't done so because it takes them 60 days to die, right? If you remember, it took about maybe 30 or 30 or 45 days for people who were initially in the hospital to be released from the hospital without symptoms. There's doctors applauding, right? So if you have a 45% a 45 day hospital stay for, and very few patients were actually ever leaving the hospital, it was like the Roach Motel, you check in, but you don't check out. You're there. Maybe you're there before you sort of go into this good night. So, so we didn't know that. That showed the, the ineptitude of the Boris Johnson government in Britain in, in terms of Boris sort of shaking hands with people who had COVID, um, who then himself would later uh, be on sort of a death watch as he was in intensive care um, himself because he had caught COVID, which was irresponsible. Um, they had other responsibilities where the terrible mortality among the worst in the world when it came to uh, nursing home nursing homes because they although they did very they did in effect nothing to protect the elderly who were the most vulnerable in fact they did everything to allow contamination and the spread of and communicable nature of the disease amid the elderly in nursing homes because the, the way that the system works which they should have realized was that you don't have a single person who works at a single nursing home, but they're spread around, they're constantly traveling. So one person could infect many people. There was a zillion typhoid Marys all around Britain. It was reprehensible and it was also needless. And that goes back to really good policymaking and about how you frame the situation. If you frame COVID 
as a case of the sniffles, you get one outcome, shaking hands and allowing nursing spread throughout nursing homes where people are going to die. And if you treat it with the emergency and the care that it takes at the outset of the pandemic, you lock down the country. And the day that they had among the worst deaths in Britain in June 2020 was the day that Jacinda Ardern lifted her restrictions because New Zealand was COVID free. Now, having said that, I'll say that there's things that you can do at the beginning of a crisis that you shouldn't do later on. Now, COVID is endemic. It's no longer a pandemic. We could, we, we could have, if, if in January and February we had taken muscular action as a world, we could have talked about COVID-19 similarly to the way we talk about Ebola, which is we don't even talk about it. We forget about it because it's a, it's a non-issue. It's a non-problem. It never be, Ebola never became a crisis, right? However, COVID did. We had lockdowns, brutal, multiple waves of, of, of COVID-19, and we're still in the middle of it as well. Although it's, again, it's become endemic, and part of the reason why is our treatment has become so much better, particularly because the people who have it are often, many of them, triple or quadruple vaxxed already, so that the case that they have, their body just mounts a, a very strong defense of it, and they power through it. I recently had COVID myself, and and I did not think like the anti-vaxxers, I didn't need this at all. Like, why did we lock down the COVID? I thought to myself, thank God I had people at Moderna, J&J, AstraZeneca, and elsewhere at BioNTech jab me in the arm with their with their sticks of life-saving serum so that I could actually, my body could mount a strong defense and I could actually weather through it, which is what I did and, and everyone else has. So how we frame the issue determines the outcome that we get. And we could have prevented it if we'd only framed it better at the outset. And even to your point there about anti-vaxxers or, or pro-vaxxers, it's a different frame seeing the same thing and the information informs the frame and then you'd start to see confirmation bias of why you're right so i often thought about that where i was interested during the pandemic for example of how people reacted differently some people were carefree and went out there didn't wash their hands all that kind of stuff and you're kind of got another people looking on oh my god with their mask on or their full ppe outfit going to the shops at the start and I thought how interesting that was that everybody is so different in their reaction to stuff like a global pandemic as well. And, you know, you just sparked that to mind just about uh, about framing. It's also about your experience. Um, people in New York typically were pretty spooked by it. Why? Because there's a lot of hospitals in New York. And all the hospitals had so much death, so many cadavers that they had to ship in freezer containers to put the dead bodies. And day and night, New Yorkers could look outside the window and could see you know, curtained bodies being hoisted and lifted on gurneys into tractor trailer mobile morgues. So yeah, so a lot of New Yorkers, the ones who didn't have summer houses in the, in the Hamptons uh, where they escaped to, um, were a little bit spooked by COVID-19. Um, I spoke to the, the emergency medical crews uh, here in uh, Britain about uh, COVID. I asked them like, hey, have you had like, just the best thing about being a journalist is that it gives you a license just to ask people questions and go up to anyone. I'm a pretty curious kind of guy. So I just sort of go up to people and say like, hey, I'm, I'm really curious. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Um, only in one instance did I have one person who was very spooked by that and say no, but usually you got to prevent them from keep on talking because it's just so interesting. Everyone loves to talk about these things. So I see a bunch of, uh, of um, emergency medical people and I say like, 
so like, are you guys vaxxed? And they're like, oh yeah, we are all totally vaxxed. Like there's not one of us who doesn't have a vaccine. I'm like, are you required to? They shake their head and they say, yeah, maybe. I don't actually don't like that. I, I don't really know, but I maybe we are. I said, well, what is there anyone who's anti-vax? And they're like, mm, emergency medical crews, no, no one's an anti-vax. It's like, why not? It's like, well, because we have to deal with all the people that we're seeing. We're constantly putting people and bringing them to into the into the emergency room because they, they can't breathe when we go home. And I say, like, you must be really nervous doing it. Like, yeah, but you know, we've all had COVID. So we've had a couple of times. So we have to just deal with it. And this, this was early on, by the way, in some instances, this, I was, I spoke to them before there was vaccines, but I said, what do you mean you've had multiple? They said, yeah, yeah. COVID is something you get again and again, and again, we've had people who've had two, three, four times. I was like, oh, I didn't know. It's not really reported. So what about your family? So like, oh yeah, our families, emergency medical teams, they're typically not investment. They're not from the class of the, of the sort of the, the leisure class. These are people who are sort of, you know, solid middle-class people. And so they're, they're, they would, their families would be prone to be a bit more anti-vaxxer than the people who are the more elitist of the, of the social spectrum, which are more scientific in their ways of thinking and therefore are much less anti-vax. I'm generalizing, but it's a largely class-based generalization that's accurate in the data. So I said, what about your families? And they said, oh yeah, our, our families are really tough. Like we, it often there's a lot of people in, in our families who, um, who don't want to get vaccinated, but we tell them bullshit, no way, not going to happen. You've got to get your vaccination. And one person tells me, it's like, and like his cousin says like, yeah, but I've never seen these problems. It's okay. But I mean, he's like, yeah, but I have, and you're getting vaxxed and everyone in your family is getting vaxxed. Everyone has to have a vaccine. So it's about what I took away from that is the importance of firsthand experience and why that's so important. And, and this will bring us to democracy. I'll explain the liaison. The there's the aphorism in business that the first generation builds it, the second one maintains it, and the third one loses it. And I thought about that uh, having been a journalist in Japan during the Fukushima crisis, where there were some communities that built the seawall and didn't and 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 kept the seawall high and didn't build below where this old marker from 800 years ago had been planted, saying do not build lower than this. But there were some other communities that ignored those markers and did build lower. And sure enough, those communities that actually built below where these ancient markers had said to do it and the seawall wouldn't be high enough, got obliterated. And there were definitely places where they actually respected the sort of the, the words of their, of their forebears and didn't build lower and they were spared. And I think about that in terms of democracy because America is only 250 years old, almost 300 years old now as a form of government. And it's really starting to feel, and certainly with World War II and the institutions we built after the war, it's starting to feel like it's the third generation effect in which um, uh, one political party is has forgotten the lessons of tyranny, to put a point on it, and are, it, and are willing to embrace it, is willing to embrace it. And that spooks me. It feels like something precious is being lost because of inattention and, and ignorance and the lack of a firsthand experience. I didn't have the firsthand experience of the disasters of World War II, but it was never not in the dining room. That is so impactful, man. And it's, it's interesting. I was talking to a, a, a French guy I work with, and he was also telling me that his, that his great-grandfather has just passed away 
and he was saying he was thinking about how the generation is passing away that would talk about that in the living room and go you know we used to see the germans coming in and they were so slick with their outfits etc and we were like peasants going to war with a little knapsack on the back and we were like how can we win against these guys and those stories have died away and just like you were saying i didn't know you, you worked on that the tsunami stones and I, I often think about the importance of tsunami stones for organizations as well for don't fall into the old ways again, because it's one of the problems with when you get successful, you get complacent. And one of the things you talk about in the book is that we've gone through a pretty anomalous period in life where it's been quite stable and steady, the environment, but that coupled with technology, which I think is so interesting from your expertise and looking at your library behind you there, your frames are so diverse, and you're a polymath, that it's the expertise of those things coming together that gives the unique view. Thank you. I don't know if I would call myself a polymath, but I'm definitely very inquisitive. And I tried to broaden it out. And at the beginning, you, you picked up this idea of cognitive foraging, which we talk about in the book, in fact, we coined the term. And I, the more I think about it, the more I think there's something to this, um, because it sort of helps me define who I am and explain to myself some of the weird choices that I've made. Um, uh, examples are, um, I've got a book called The Social History of the Machine Gun. Um, I've recently bought a, uh, an early edition of William Penn's books, Fruits of Solitude. Uh, which is maxims that he wrote when he was young. William Penn was the founder of Pennsylvania from late 1600s, Quaker. Um, I've got uh, two books, not just one, on uh, the history of, uh, of street skate skateboarding. I was never a skateboarder. You don't want to see what would happen if I was on a skateboard. It would be the end of me. But um, I'm intrigued by things like the dark slide in which you jump up to an ollie, as it's called, uh, which is you get you, you, you with a, a weird movement, you get some lift on the board, you flip the board under. So you then take what would be where your feet would be. And you slide on say a park bench or a banister uh, with your feet next to where the wheels are, and then you flip it over again, and then you slide again. I investigated that pretty closely uh, for the book, although we didn't in the end include it in the book. And I feel badly that we did because it is such an interesting story of how it came about. And it's really about how you reframe skateboarding altogether. Um, but the weird thing is I can't understand, and I've got lots of books on the history of the court jester in medieval Europe, which is in the book. Okay. But the reason why I take some succor from all of this is, first, why do I have all this weird stuff? I can't even store it all. My wife is pulling out her hair and thinking like, get rid of it. But I can't. And it's it sort of is part of that inquisitiveness of of like a honeybee going from flower to flower, collecting a little bit of nectar, not knowing how I'm going to use it in this case. It's foraging, but it's cognitive foraging to get lots of different inputs, particularly inputs that other people aren't thinking about. My new shtick for the last maybe 12 months has been to read and find books and, and video things, just in intellectual inputs that no one is talking about. And working on, and the reason why is if I read every, if I read what everyone else is reading, I'm going to come up with the thoughts that everyone else is thinking. But if I go off-piste to people who have been forgotten, um, I have a better chance of 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 recreating the old into the new or divining something original. 
And so that's hence William Penn and um, and the social history of the machine gun, which is like University of Kansas Press, 1957. Um, I'm looking at Lewis. I've got a bookshelf ahead of me as well. I've got Lewis Mumford. I've got C.P. Snow. He's well known. Um, but like the book by you know Tom Wolfe, The Right Stuff, not going to happen. Sorry, Tom. Uh, Raymond Aron, a French intellectual from the 1960s. I'm all in. It's why I felt I, I like I, I do believe we have energy and the energy connects even remotely across the planet. And this book really spoke to me. And now I see why the the energy behind the book as well, because it's it's and you gave me that term with a beautiful term cognitive foraging, because it helped me make sense of myself as well. I'm the same. My books were in the attic at home. And then I, I got the studio and I was like, great, now I have the bookshelves. I'm on I'm on I'm, I have to buy a fifth bookshelf now behind me as well. And it's great because I I haven't read them all, but I intend to and it's so it's so beneficial for creating unique frames and a unique way to see the world. I, I often think kind of the, you know, when you get a, an eye test, and they put the test machine on you and they put the frames, but the frame every time you add the new ones, it stays there, and it becomes a unique way of seeing the world. And that absolutely shines through with this book we as i said to our audience we're only on like chapter two at this stage and we have a two-part episode and our time is up today but it's absolutely fascinating book there's so many stories and you can see even from today think about how ken has built the story you have like from a business perspective different frames apple nokia from a pandemic perspective medicine sans frontier versus the who different frames you and your spouse <laughs> different frames different perspective it's so beneficial because it gives you empathy but it also raises awareness for the bigger picture ken for people who are interested because you're a brilliant storyteller as well and you do lots of keynote speaking as well where can people find you for your personal work and also for your work with the economist yeah, great. Thanks. So if they go to kukier.com, C-U-K-I-E-R.com, they'll see my website. If they visit Twitter, uh, which is a microblogging site, if you've not heard about it, um, currently not owned by Elon Musk, it's at K-N <laughs> for Kenneth Neal Kukier, K-N Kukier. And uh, The Economist is a uh, weekly uh, newspaper, which also has a website and an app, and uh, as well as videos and podcasts. And it's uh, at... Um, www.economist.com. I encourage people to, uh, to go to all three. It's been fantastic having you on the show for episode one. And thank you for agreeing to do an episode two, author of framers make better decisions in the age of big data. Kenneth Kukier. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that episode of framers part one. I want to thank our sponsor Zai before we finish up boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to create multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com.